Welcome to the final week in our sermon series on deconstruction and doubt, where we've been on a journey together from belief to disbelief and back again. And this Sunday is about back again. It's a great privilege to close off our series, and I'm really looking forward to talking about coming back again, about reconstruction. Deconstruction has been a major topic in Christian and evangelical circles lately. It's hard to pin down just one single definition of deconstruction, but I I found this one by a guy named John Bloom that I thought was good. He says, deconstruction is a critical dismantling of a person's understanding of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. Last year, the Mars Hill Church podcast shook the world with scathing details about the culture inside that church, and it was really used as a launching pad to talk about some of the bigger cultural problems in church in the West. On that podcast, Paul Tripp said these words. He said, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it because our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two, church and culture. And when and we better do some deconstructing or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these sad places. John Bloom commenting on this quote says, It's clear that what he means by deconstruction is a critical dismantling not of historical Orthodox Christian beliefs or rejecting the oversight of the New Testament endorsed faithful, godly, spiritual leaders, but a deconstructing of cultural influences that distort and redefine the faith in unbiblical and harmful ways. Now, I would add to that quote, also part of the deconstruction, is the damage that a lot of spiritual leaders, frankly, people who who look just like me, have caused onto the church. We we have to deconstruct the, the negative cultural and even internal influences, not our core Orthodox Christian faith. Now, a positive way to put deconstruction is this. We should all be intellectually and emotionally engaged in our faith. We should all be asking questions. We should all be working it out, as the scriptures say, in fear and trembling. And I've always appreciated, as long as I've been listening to Pastor John, early on I heard him say, struggle is a sign of life. And he's always said that we're good here at Sanctus with questions and skepticism and doubt and and asking those big questions. You have to work it out. You have to break it down to build it back up. I used to go to the gym all the time, five, six days a week. Then I had two kids, and that doesn't really happen so often anymore. But this is the week. This is the week that I'm going back. Please hold me accountable. What I learned about building muscle when I was going to the gym is that there's only one way, and we all know this, to build muscle, and that's to break it down. You have to put your body into a state of, in a sense, pain and and difficulty. You have to lift just a little bit more than your body can handle, not too much, or it'll, it'll... You will injure yourself, and I can attest to that. But just enough more that you're stretching and you're breaking that muscle down, that's the only way that it can be built back up. And I think that's a great analogy for what proper deconstruction should be because it it can be a very, very healthy and productive thing. It's very important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And it's important to understand what is a cultural influence or church culture and what the Bible truly says. So the big question for us today as we wrap up this series is, what if you go too far deconstructing? Or what if you deconstruct your faith altogether? 
Or, or, or what do you do after you've deconstructed in your faith and perhaps you're feeling completely disoriented? What if you do if somebody you know has done this or somebody you know has walked away? How do you pray for them? How do you talk to them? Or what if you've never had Christian faith in the first place to deconstruct? We're in John chapter 21 today, and I think it has a lot to say about each one of those questions. Jesus has an amazing exchange with Peter in the last passage of the book of John. It's often called Peter's restoration. I think today what we can do is call it Peter's reconstruction. Now, the backstory is important before we get to our core passage. Peter, as many of us know, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In fact, he was in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples with James and John. The three of those guys were the closest to Jesus, and they were there for everything. Everything. They were there, front row seat for the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine that? They were there for the feeding of the 5,000, all of the healings, the demons that were being cast out of people. They saw it all. But Peter wasn't always that special. When Jesus found him, he had no education, no impressive family, no money. He was just a humble fisherman. Peter was truly plucked from obscurity and called by name to follow Jesus. Very early in Jesus' ministry, he called this guy named Simon to be his disciple. He was a fisherman. He found him fishing. And the very first thing that Jesus did when he called him, the first time they ever met, the audacity. <laughs> Jesus changed his name. Listen to this in, in John chapter 1. The first thing Andrew did, Peter's brother, when he found Jesus, was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the Christ. And he brought his brother to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. First introduction. Okay, cool. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. And later on, Peter, after Peter realized that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus told Peter exactly why he changed his name and what he had called him to as his disciple. Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, not Simon. You're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus calls Peter to be a leader of his church, a pillar, a rock of his church in those early critical days when the church was just beginning. And in the end, Peter went on to become one of the most devoted, passionate, and I think one of the most hilarious disciples, if not one of the most hilarious figures in the entire Bible. I mean, this guy is always doing crazy things. The first thing that comes to mind is when they're on their fishing boat, at night, they see Jesus. They think it's a ghost. They see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter, he's just like this ready, fire, aim guy. I'll do anything, all in, no matter what. Let's go right now. He says, well, I'm going out there too. I'm hopping out. So he hops out of the boat and he starts walking on the water with Jesus. And in typical Peter fashion, the enthusiasm turns to fear and doubt and uncertainty and instead of looking at Jesus, he looks at the waves, he feels fear, he starts to sink, and the only reason he didn't drown is because Jesus saved him. He also makes, all the time, these grand and not-so-humble statements. In John chapter 13, Peter and Jesus have a conversation that's critical to this passage we're heading towards in John 21. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about his death. And Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Remember he said that. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Really? 
Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then again, later, at the last supper before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter says, even if all others fall away, I will never disown you. That's his promise to Jesus. And Jesus responded to him by saying, actually, before the rooster crows three times, excuse me, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The moment comes for Peter to prove that he's up to it, to prove that he can come through on his promises. Him and his disciples, Jesus, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right before his passion. And Jesus is arrested. Judas and the religious leaders come to get Jesus. And this is Peter's moment. This is his clutch moment to prove that he's up to the task. And he starts off great, sort of, like in a super weird way. When the mom tries to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword and he just cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus is like, bro, you need to chill out. That's not how we do things. And Jesus is taken in to see the high priest Caiaphas for questioning. And Peter's one of the few that actually follows him there. And he goes into the courtyard and he rests by a fire to warm himself. And then the moment that changes everything for him happens. John 18. Somebody says to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And Peter replied, I am not. Strike one. John 18, 25. Meanwhile, Peter was still standing there warming himself by the fire. And they asked him again, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Strike two. He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, challenged him and said, no, no, no. Didn't I see you in the garden? And for the third time, Peter completely denied even knowing Jesus. And in that moment, he could hear our rooster begin to crow. In the Luke account of this story, it says that Peter looked and saw Jesus. And Jesus looked straight at Peter. They made eye contact as the rooster was crowing. I don't exactly know how this would have worked. Jesus must have been in, a, in an elevated position inside the building. Peter was in the courtyard by the fire. But can you imagine betraying Jesus, disowning him, and then locking eyes with him? I mean, what emotions flow through your mind in that moment? I mean, this isn't just like a normal friendship breakup. <laughs> this is Jesus. Peter knows he's the Messiah. He's confessed it. And he disowned him and betrayed him. And then he makes eye contact with him. And it says Peter ran away and wept bitterly. I mean, just try to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Imagine the instantaneous regret and despair and deep sense of guilt and, and fear and disillusionment. and What an awful Life-altering feeling that must have been. It must have been like what a marriage falling apart from infidelity must feel like. Just that instant sinking feeling of deep despair. See, this was Peter's moment. He promised. He said he would be there in that clutch moment. It wasn't the sword in the garden that was the big moment for Peter. No, that's when the adrenaline was up. That's when it was like, you know, a little bit easier to to work himself up. The tough moment, the real moment, 
was when he was by the fire, when he was being questioned and judged, and when, here's the key, it would have cost him if he said yes. That's the critical moment, and he failed in the biggest moment of his life. Now, as Peter runs away, weeping bitterly, I think for him, time stands still. He's trying to reconcile and process what he just did to the one he believed to the Messiah. And while he's thinking about that, Jesus is crucified. While he's trying to sort through his emotions, the one he betrayed is brutally killed. He must have wondered, could I have done something to stop it? If I said, yes, I do know him, would that have changed anything? Of course not. But how could I have done this to him? Silence, confusion, fear, regret, doubt, despair. And I think if it were me, a lot more silence. Now, the reason we're still talking about this guy named Jesus 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about Peter, is because what happens next. As John shared last week, the women went to the tomb on the third day to mourn, and they found it empty. The angels appeared and said, Jesus is alive. So they went and told the disciples. And in classic Peter fashion, as soon as the women told the disciples, he bolted <laughs> and immediately ran as fast as he could to the empty tomb to see it for himself. And when he got there, he found an empty tomb. But he didn't see Jesus. The next time he would have seen Jesus was in John chapter 20. John walked us through this passage a couple weeks ago when Jesus appears and confronts who we like to call Doubting Thomas. Now, Peter is not mentioned in that story, but there is no reason to think that Peter is not in the room when Jesus appears and goes to Thomas and say, see my hands, see my side, see my feet. Now do you believe me? Peter's in the room. He's like in the back corner. Can you imagine what he's thinking? The next time he saw Jesus, the last time he saw him was when he disowned him and locked eyes with him in the courtyard. Then he was killed. Then he rose to life. Boy, that's, that's a lot of information to process. That's, that requires a great deal of emotional intelligence, I think, to get through that. I mean, Peter and Jesus have unfinished business. They didn't talk in that upper room that we know of when Jesus appeared to Thomas. But we know there's a conversation looming. Peter knows. It's like when you know with your, with your spouse or with a colleague, you know that you got to have that hard conversation. You're just dreading it, but you know it's coming and you have to have it. I think that's what Peter's thinking right now. So, we arrive in John chapter 21, our passage. We see Jesus and Peter interact for the first time after his betrayal. And what we don't see from Jesus is an argument Revenge, bitterness. No, we see in an amazing way, we see Jesus' love. As we go through this, I want you to remember, Peter is not the main character in this story. It may be Peter's reconstruction, but Jesus is the main character in this story. We are looking at the person of Jesus because we in this story are most like Peter. We're the ones. We all have gone astray. We each, including myself, we have betrayed and disowned Jesus. There is no reason and no justification for us to look down our noses at him for what he did because we have all been in his shoes. So here's the question that we need to ask as we go through this passage. How does Jesus respond to us when we turn our backs on him?
The encounter begins at the Sea of Galilee. Here's a picture of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. Calling it a sea in our context is a little unhelpful. It's smaller than Lake Simcoe. You can see from side to side. It's, it's really the Lake of Galilee. So Jesus is on the shore. It's been days since the disciples saw him. Peter is completely disoriented. And what does he do? Well, he does what I or any of us do when we feel disoriented. We go back to what we know. And Peter goes back to what he did before he met Jesus, his old life. He goes back to fish. He takes his friends with him, a few other disciples. Thomas is there, Nathaniel, James, John, a couple others. And it says that they caught nothing all night. Now, I know some of you like fishing. I don't. Um, it's a little boring for me. Maybe I just haven't been taken out with the right people and the right equipment. But it says right here that they caught nothing all night. I mean, that is objectively boring. <laughs> he didn't have a phone. He probably didn't have chips and snacks and things to do while he was fishing, catching nothing all night. So I'm pretty sure there's only one thing he could have been doing all night long. He was thinking. He was thinking. He was trying to figure out, like, oh, man, i got to have this conversation with Jesus. I can't believe what I did. I can't believe he's alive. This is amazing. I'm terrified. So many thoughts. Maybe he's doing a little deconstructing of his own. Maybe he's starting to, to, to doubt himself. Maybe he's wondering if he will ever come back. And then he hears a voice calling from the beach. Here's what it says in John 21, 5. Jesus called out to them, Friends, don't you have any fish? I like to think that was a little sarcastic, like a lawyer question. He knows they have no fish. No, they answered. Well, he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some, which sounds a little ridiculous. They probably rolled their eyes, but when they did, they were unable to, to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John's code name for himself, which is also a little funny, said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And again, classic Peter, as soon as he heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around it, for he had taken it off. In the ESV, it says that he was naked, which I have all kinds of questions about, and just jumps right into the water. It says they were 300 yards offshore. He just starts swimming, and he makes it, towing, he makes it to the shore, and the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net of fish, for they were far from shore, about 100 yards, excuse me, 100. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it, and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring the fish that you've just caught. And Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus invited them to come and have breakfast with them. Now, this tells us a few critical things. First of all, it tells us that Jesus really is alive. And, and if you hear nothing else from the, the last nine weeks of this series, hear this. Jesus really is alive. And that is the whole point. We see him here in, in his resurrected body. And it proves that it's a physical resurrection because he's sitting on the beach eating food. He's a real and he is really alive. And, and although he's been abused and betrayed, he shows kindness. He helps. He serves. This is like washing their feet. He serves the one who betrayed him. Now, just one little side note. The 153 fish... 
That doesn't symbolize anything. The only reason it's in there is because this is a true account. This is an eyewitness firsthand account. There is no other narrative reason to include 153 fish. The only explanation is that they counted them out and they included it in this firsthand account. This is another reason that we can be true and, and, and have faith to know and be confident that we can believe in Jesus and what the Bible says. Jesus invites them to come have breakfast. And after breakfast, it's time for Peter and Jesus to have their hard conversation. We pick it up in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. This is an amazing exchange, and it goes on in a moment. But first, let's look at this. Jesus, if you noticed does not call him Peter. He calls him his name before he was a disciple. He calls him Simon. And what this tells us is that Jesus is demonstrating that Peter has now lost his authority to lead. He failed in the most critical moment. And he is no longer a rock. Rocks don't crumble. He crumbled under the pressure. See, this is a reconstruction of his first calling three years prior on that beach when Jesus first met him. What were the words that he said to Peter? Come and follow me. He asks Simon, do you love me more than these? I spent a great deal of time thinking and studying what Jesus meant when he said more than these because it doesn't explicitly say. I think one strong option is Jesus is pointing at the 153 fish on the ground and saying, Peter, do you love me more than your old way of life? Do you love me more than what's certain, what you know? Do you love me more than your career, your source of income, your source of potential wealth? Do you love me more than stability? I think that's what he was asking. Maybe he was also asking, do you love me more than them? Pointing at the disciples. Do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than your status, your reputation? Whatever he's asking here, the point is, Peter, do you love me more than anything else, including yourself, including your comfort, including your safety? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I do. So Jesus begins to recommission him for ministry. He's been stripped of his authority to lead. Now Jesus begins building it back up again, like those broken down muscles being built back up. He says to him, feed my lambs. And we're about to hear two other variations of this. They all mean the same thing. He just says, I have called you to lead my church. So lead my church and pastor my people. Jesus asks him again a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, so take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this, Peter was hurt because he knew Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now this third time, Peter's not hurt because he thinks Jesus is being rude and his feelings are hurt. No. He's hurt because this is a clear parallel, and he knows it, 
Three questions to counteract three denials. Peter now knows exactly what they're talking about. They're talking about his three denials, his betrayal. Now, interesting, and we miss this in our English translations, but the third time, Jesus actually slightly changes his question. The first two times, he uses this Greek word for love called agape, which is like the highest form of love throughout Scripture. One way to explain it is just perfect, unfailing love. Jesus asked him the first two times, Peter, do you love me perfectly in an unfailing, unconditional way? And Peter's response is very interesting. He does not use the word agape when he responds. We read it as, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But what he says in the Greek is, yes, Lord, you know I phileo love you which is a different Greek word for love, which is more like friendship love. He refuses to say that he loves Jesus perfectly as Jesus loves him. Now, this may seem like lukewarm commitment from Peter, but what if for the first time in his very life, this is true humility? The third time, Jesus changes his question and he lowers himself to Peter's level. And this is, I think, one of the greatest character traits of God that we see all throughout the course of Scripture and history. God condescends down to our level. He meets us in our lowly estate. I mean, we see this most radically in the incarnation, that Jesus would take on flesh and leave heaven and come down and be born in a manger as like a nobody in backwater Nazareth to just truly humble himself right down to where we are. So Jesus changes it and says, okay, Peter, do you love me? Do you phileo love me? Do you love me the absolute best you know how? Even though we both know you will make mistakes and you can't love me perfectly. Because we know Peter and us, we cannot love Jesus as perfectly as Jesus loves us. Peter said, you know everything, Lord. Yes, I love you. Three denials, three affirmations of love. And then three commissions by Jesus. This is complete reconstruction of Peter. Lastly, Jesus goes on to explain to Peter in this passage that if you do follow me, it's going to cost you everything. So you better think. No more ready, fire, aim stuff. Think about this first. And in the following verses, he, he alludes to Peter himself being crucified when he's older. This phrase, stretch out your hands, it's, it's a direct implication of crucifixion. And Christian history tells us that's exactly what happened to Peter when he was older. He was crucified. And Christian tradition tells us that Peter actually asked to be crucified upside down so as not to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. Jesus knows all this, and yet in perfect love still says to Peter, follow me. Peter does. We can read his writings in the New Testament today because he went on to be one of the greatest Christian leaders of all time. <clears throat> now, as we've said throughout this series, doubt, skepticism, uncertainty, bitterness, questioning, wrestling, wondering, wavering, it's all fine. There's room for that. There's room for us to work that out. <clears throat> but after all the questioning, all the researching, and the wondering, the bitterness and pain and hurt to work through, there comes a moment where all of us just have to say, I will follow you. It's not blind faith, but it is a leap of faith. We can't have every single one of our questions answered. If we could, we would be on the same level as God. 
but we are not. And there comes a moment in every one of our lives when we just have to say, Lord Jesus, I know you're real. I don't understand it all. I have baggage, but I will follow you. Because it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Jesus wants to work through our pain and questions with us, but it's actually about him. He's the one who gives life and life to the full. As I have been listening, uh, studying, and preparing for this passage, I haven't been able to stop thinking about what's taken place in my family. Last summer, my brother, Nathan, who's 20 months younger than me, one grade year apart, after 15 or so years of wandering and being far from the Lord, he gave his life to Jesus last year. And uh, they had moved, uh, him and his uh, family, they had moved into the house that we're living in. And uh, I wasn't too happy about it, honestly, at the time, because Nathan and I have never really gotten along since we were kids. And when they moved in, Nathan uh, was going through a tough time. And a few days later, our grandfather passed away in Newfoundland. So we got in a plane and we flew out there. And Nathan was quite struck by the words that were said at his funeral, many of them by my dad as he preached the message. And he noted, Nathan did, that everybody said the same thing about our grandfather. Is that beyond all of his qualities and character traits and, and quirkiness and all the things that we knew about him, there was only one thing that you had to know about him. And if you didn't know it, you couldn't understand John Penny. And that was that everything in his life revolved around Jesus. And Nathan loved uh, our grandfather, and he was struck by that. We flew home a few days later, and I happened to be preaching that day. And I wouldn't say this unless Nathan told me, but some of my words, uh, as I preached about the cross, resonated with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that afternoon, he went home and he gave his life to Jesus. Since then, he's been through restoration prayer here at the church and the transformation that I've seen in him firsthand as we share, share a house on a daily basis has been a blessing of a lifetime. He has been truly reconstructed. He's been recommissioned. And do you think that when Nathan gave his life back to Jesus, when he, when he had that prayer, do you think Jesus rebuked him? Do you think he said, how dare you take this long, Nate? How could you have betrayed and turned your back on me? You grew up in the church. You know. You knew everything. How could? No. That is not how Jesus responds to any of us when we come back. He responds like the father in the prodigal son story. He runs towards us with open arms, full of love and grace and mercy. He has always been pursuing Nathan, myself, and you. And he just wants us back. Do you see the love of Jesus on display in this amazing passage? I mean, just stop. Just stop for a second. This story is about the love of Jesus. Can you see the love in his eyes? How countercultural is that? I mean, when people wrong me, I don't want to look them in the eyes with love and tenderness and compassion. I want to tear a strip off. Like, that's my natural inclination. I think all of us, when we are hurt, we want to hurt back. Or we want to hurt back by withholding love. Or, or just avoid it altogether. Jesus goes straight to him. P Jesus finds where Peter is, goes to him, serves him, makes him some bacon and eggs on the beach, 
and says, all right, do you, do you love me? Let's talk about it. I mean, can you see his love? When you fully see the love of Jesus, it changes how you see things. And as we talk about deconstruction and doubt, and as we survey the landscape of the church in North America, when you fully see the love of Jesus, it changes how you see the church. That doesn't mean that we get to excuse all the wrong behavior. But we need to be reminded that Jesus is perfect. His love is perfect. And the church is not. The church is filled with imperfect people. He has shown us grace. We don't look down our nose at Peter for screwing up because we've all screwed up. But Jesus has shown us grace instead. He has served us and forgiven us. And now we must show that same grace to each other. And again, grace, showing grace to others doesn't mean that we excuse and forget the bad things that have been done. Some people, some pastors, have justifiably lost their authority to lead. And some people, I mean, boundaries need to be set up. Forgiveness can be a process. It takes some time. But the posture of your heart cannot be one of harboring bitterness and vengeance towards other people who have wronged you. We will never have unity in our church or the church if we do that. And how could we not show grace and love and compassion when Jesus has shown that to us? Now, at the same time, in this moment in history for the church, holiness and integrity matters, I think, more now than ever before. And if I can just talk to leaders for a moment, leaders in our church, my colleagues, pastors, even elders, if I can be so bold, myself, firstly, the stakes are so high right now with everything going on around us. Trust is thin in society for the church. Trust is thin for the church within the church. And as pastors and leaders, our personal decisions matter so much if you're not a leader and you shipwreck your faith, you shipwreck your faith, and that's not good. But if you're a leader and you shipwreck your faith, you shipwreck other people too. And I don't say this to, to come down hard and, and add pressure to an already difficult task, but we must be reminded, as Peter was reminded by Jesus, if you choose to follow me, which for Peter, similar to me and some others, for Peter, following Jesus meant being a leader of his church. And Jesus was not just asking him to follow him like a follower. He was asking for Peter, following him meant being a leader. And to be a leader for Jesus, it costs you everything. Just to follow Jesus costs you everything, but the stakes are so high when you lead. So please, my friends, myself, your personal integrity and holiness matters. Wake up early and read your Bible. Practice confession to other people. Ask God to humble and soften your heart as I continue to do. Ask for wisdom because we need it. We are too weak. If you are investigating faith as an unbeliever, a seeker, or as a believer, you're completely deconstructing. Maybe you, you're finished. You don't want anything to do with church anymore. You're taking a break. I've heard this phrase a lot. You're, you, you need a palate cleanse from the church. Listen. It's all good. No judgment. Well done, actually, for thinking critically and asking hard questions and struggling through it. 
Just invite Jesus into the process, okay? You probably have already. But every day, I mean, invite Jesus into the process. Every conversation you have about it, stop and invite Jesus into the process. Make sure you're reading his word. Make sure you seek mentors, and not just echo chamber mentors, older, different thinking mentors than you, so you can get a well-rounded perspective. And, 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 and I know the pain is real, but don't let your pain be God. Let God be God. And let him come and heal your pain. It's a subtle difference, but it's huge. Our pain cannot be the Lord of our lives. Jesus is the only Lord who can be Lord of our lives. I'll end with this. Wherever you're at, whatever, whatever season you're in, Jesus wants to have the hard conversation with you. That's what we see here in the passage. Jesus seeks Peter out to have that looming, hard conversation. And is it a hard one? I mean, Peter was emotional. There's no doubt there were tears in his eyes throughout, but it was a tender, loving, grace-filled conversation. So just have the hard conversation with him. Invite him into your pain and your hurt and your history and your regret and your shame. Jesus never humiliates us, as Pastor John always reminds. He just humbles us and heals us. That's his agenda. But friends, you will never experience the perfect love of Jesus unless you invite him into your pain and bitterness. Do you see his love? Do you see the love of Jesus? Do you realize that this conversation with Peter on the beach was the last thing Jesus did on earth because he, before he ascended into heaven? I mean, that's how much he cared about Peter, even after he betrayed him. I mean, Jesus left heaven and came to earth for Peter, the man who would betray him in the most critical moment. And just after Peter betrayed him, Jesus died for him. Perhaps the most literal, direct application of Paul's words in Romans, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Moments after Peter betrayed him, Christ died for Peter. And because we are like Peter, the same is true for us. Jesus died for us just like he died for Peter. And he is so beautiful. He is so full of love. He is still working. He is still moving. We just need a glimpse of that love. So let's pause and pray and invite the Holy Spirit into this moment together. Lord Jesus, as we wrap up this series, thank you that you're alive. You really, really are. Thank you that we can have confidence in our faith, that there is reason to believe. We worship you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive and for your perfect love that seeks us out and never gives up on us. I simply pray this morning, Lord, that you would let us see your love. Give us a revelation of your love, we pray. Each one, wherever we are, encounter us with your perfect agape love. Lord, for those of us who you have called to lead your church in some way, would you strengthen us and protect us, Lord? We need your help. Call on your church to pray for us. The journey is too much for us, as it says in the Old Testament. We need your strength and power, so empower us and protect us and guard us from the evil one, we pray. All of us, we invite you into our seeking, our deconstruction, our pain and regret and bitterness, and pray, reconstruct us, Lord. Reconstruct our church. Recommission each one of us for ministry and encounter us with your undeniable love. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.